My name is Jasper Kaur, and you're listening to the World Tech Organization podcast, hashtag AskCanadian6. I know you haven't heard from us in a while. We were busy with the federal election, but we're here today to provide some debrief and some commentary. You'll be hearing from myself and my guest co-host, board member, and newly minted Master of Political Management, Gerpa Kaur. And we're very excited to announce our new president, Dejinder Singh, will be leading our new millennial majority female executive over the next few years to work on all the amazing things that the WSO does. We'll also talk about the oh-so-exciting Don Cherry situation and give you some perspective from Canadian Six, because I assume that's why you're here, to ask Canadian Six what we think, and we'll share some of our thoughts and the try and talk about why there was such a amazing and strong reaction from the Sikh community when Don Cherry made his comments about Remembrance Day. Welcome to the podcast, Gepakor. We've had your contribution on the podcast before. You've done research for us. You've shared stuff with us. And I'm so excited to have you here today because Jaskarn is off on new adventures and hopefully he'll join us again uh, in future podcasts. How are you doing this morning? And how are you? I'm good. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, you were very much a part of this election. Um, I saw you on TV. You were giving an interview talking about sick interests in the 905. What was your experience in this election? And I'm especially curious because you this is not just your passion, but also what you've studied and your life's work. So as someone who focuses on politics and political management. What's your feeling coming out of this election? Hmm. I think this election was pretty distinct for me because I believe that it was going to be a minority government from the get-go. Um, I just had the strong inkling that it would not go any which way. And that has a lot to do with how people feel about politics in Canada, um, how people feel about political leaders, and how they feel about their local representation. Um, one thing that I was really worried about was voter apathy. I was really worried that turnout would not be there. And as somebody who works and studies in the political space, it's kind of disheartening when people don't use their democratic right to vote. Um, but thankfully, we did not see that. But we did have a minority government. And we're going to see the impacts of that for the next, you know, two to four years, potentially. I think it was the same feeling in my home. We were watching the election results come in. And from the very beginning, uh, I know we can't trust polls anymore. And there was all this speculation. But even on the day of, I was listening to the radio and there were folks that were saying they were going to the polls and they still hadn't made up their minds. There was so much up in the air. There was a real question around uh, Justin Trudeau as a moral leader and what that meant. And there was so much confusion um, that while I knew or felt that there was going to be a minority government, I was still um, a little bit, there was still, it felt like a little bit was still up in the air as the results mm -hmm. were coming in. So I did kind of watch them with some hesitancy and I completely agree with you. Uh, voter apathy was a real risk. Uh, mm -hmm. So the role of Canadians and uh, sick Canadians in the election was interesting because uh, there is not one sick perspective. And I think we see this every time in elections, but we saw it now as well, where six were present in every political party. So we have 18 sick MPs this time going to the House of Commons, and they are coming from the NDP, they're coming from the Conservatives, and they're coming from 
the Liberal Party. And so you can definitely be a sick and there's not one prescribed political party for six. Um, what do you think this minority government is going to mean for six? So it's a, there's a lot of speculation and conversation around how these parties are going to have to work together to get things done and how it's um, things are a lot more fluid when there's a minority. And where is the, do you see a, a role for the sick voice in that? Or uh, I'm trying to think if these sick MPs even would talk to each other or get along or do anything that might bring the voices of sex forward. Mm, for sure. I think when you have minority government, like you mentioned, there is a, uh, you have to work together, unfortunately. In order to pass legislation, the liberals need either the bloc or the NDP um, to, in order to get their votes through the House. So historically, we've seen really great things come out of minority governments. We've seen things like universal health care and uh, the Canadian pension plan. These are what we consider to be almost institutions in this day. Um, so, but when it comes to sick politicians, I think when it comes to their partisanship, unfortunately, often that comes first. And this is something that kind of bugs me in terms of the political space is that people have these labels on them and they unfortunately aren't allowed or cannot see past these partisan labels. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how the next two to four years go. And as you may know, that elections take place every four years, but typically minority governments don't make it that long unless they're able to really work together. So there's a very real chance that we'll be at the polls again in two years. And, you know, Jagmeet Singh has already come out and said that he's open to voting against the the speech from the throne, which is the first confidence vote that they'll have later um, in early December. So if that confidence vote fails, you know, we may be sent to the polls quicker than we think. We um, and and minority governments typically do last around two years. They they're not known for lasting a very long time. Um, I'm hoping that right out the gate there won't be too many people trying to go back to the polls because I think Canadians would be very upset. But I also uh, want to go back to this a little bit because I think having six present in a majority government didn't feel like we had sick representation in Parliament, and I say that because. Um, I, I do hear a lot of people coming back with, well, you don't know what happens behind the scenes. And six being present at the table meant there was a lot of damage control and a lot of things didn't happen that could have happened. And we should be grateful. And asking me to be grateful for what I don't know is a weird <laughs> political request. But what I do know is that we were put on um, the list of public safety threats as terrorists. What I do know is that Quebec passed Bill 21, banning people with overt religious symbols from being in public roles, and that the federal government didn't push back against that. And so I know that um, under a liberal majority government, I'm definitely aware of the places where the sick MPs did not bring forward sick interests in a way that I could see from where I was sitting. So I think what's my question then to them and generally is what are you 18 folks going to do as Canadians, but as sick Canadians? Hmm. I totally understand that. And from the outside, it can be super frustrating, but that's where organizations like the WSO come into play. We're nonpartisan, we're third party advocacy, and you're seeing the more and more importance of this advocacy when it came to the terror 
terror report when it comes to Bill 21. Um, throughout the election, the WSO has been working with municipal governments to push anti-secularism bill resolutions. So it basically, the, the gist of the resolu- resolution is that Bill 21 or legislation like Bill 21 would not be allowed in their municipality. And some people want to talk about jurisdiction, but when we pass these types of resolutions in our cities where we have people of color, where we have overt religious symbols, we're getting Bill 21 within that conversation. So when it comes to these types of governments, especially in a minority government where lobbying will be increasingly important in order to get legislation through the House, that's where third-party advocacy organizations come into play. I agree with you completely. I think I've heard those conversations as well. What does it matter if, and shout outs to all the cities that did pass anti-Bill 21 legislation. Um, I think Calgary started it and Brampton and Mississauga and a whole bunch of cities have come forward. And for folks that are listening, maybe outside of Canada, the Bill 21 is within our provinces. uh, And that's where that fight is happening. But for municipalities and for the for municipal and federal government to push back, I think definitely has value. And we did see a complete lack of that in all major political parties. Um, so what what did you think? I mean, we all listened, watched the debates and listened to the debates and listened to interviews. What was your reaction to the response by federal parties to Bill 21 or the lack of response by federal parties to Bill 21? I think what you said, secondly, um, hits the head on the nail. It was a lack of response on every single political party. And that's very disheartening as a Canadian sick. And it comes down to their justification for it is that Quebec is a battleground. They need those seats. So they're unwilling to touch the topic. Um, And I understand political strategy. I understand wanting to win. We all want to win in life. However, when it becomes to these moral arguments, you need to take a stand. And had one political party, you know, kind of come out and said, you know, no, we're against Bill 21 and we will do everything in our power once we're elected to fight it, I think their poll numbers would have jumped significantly just because they were standing out from the other three parties, the three major parties, I should say. I agree. And I think when we look at the Bloc Quebecois went from, was it three seats last time? A very yeah. small number. They didn't have yeah. a, a, like official party status. Yeah. The Bloc Quebecois basically came back to life in this election. And a lot of the commentary after the election is pointing to the resurgence of Quebec nationalism. And I think um, this time it wasn't branded as separatism, but as nationalism. So this kind of Quebec French nationalism and the resurgence of that helped this party come back to life. And a lot of that was fueled by provincial politics and it was fueled by Bill 21. So um, it's not like the federal party's strategy of not taking Bill 21 head on worked because whatever Mm -hmm. they did, um, the Bloc Quebec still came back to life and everyone lost seats. And so it might've been a stronger political strategy to speak up against it and to gain that support elsewhere. And that also, it, comes down, sorry, it, it comes down to a numbers game, right? They look at what risks they're willing to take. And that wasn't one, I think, at the time that, you know, campaign managers were like national campaign managers were willing to take. But I think now looking back on it, I imagine that they they're thinking that they should have. But at the same time, it I, I, I fight myself internally on this is that 
why is that even a decision being made in the first place? <laughs> mm-hmm. why, why aren't you having strong, um, strong statements about this, regardless if it is an upper's game? I think it's so interesting to watch because it was so obvious that because Quebec was a battleground, federal parties were not overtly pushing back against Bill 21. And you had sick candidates running um, all over the 905. You had them running all over um, Southern Ontario. And we also know out West, um, none of them, they all told the party line, none of them pushed back against Bill 21. Um, people that cover their heads and people who wouldn't have been allowed to work in Quebec, they themselves, the hypocrisy of not taking that stance ultimately means that in their decision-making process, they valued the power and the ability to move their party forward more than standing up for six. I don't think that's a stretch to say. Yep. No, I completely agree. And But I'm hoping now that we have a government um, in place and, and now that we're not campaigning, even though they say the campaign never really ends, that we'll be able to see stronger statements from political parties and more action on this file. Because if you look I'm at hopeful. some polling, <laughs> I'm hopeful as well. Um, if you look at polling, there is sentiment across Canada that is in favor of similar legislation. And so some people say, hey, it's like it's only in one province. It's not going to spread. The polling's there. The polling shows that there is the potential for legislation like this to spread. And I really so don't scary. know what our community would do. Where would we go? What That's would we so do? scary. Yeah. And, and, this, so and scary. Ontario, I know, um, pushed back um, against Bill 21 as well. And they didn't um, even like hold discussion over it. And I think the sound bites that would have come out of that would have been quite horrid. But I think it's really interesting for Ontario to say that they wouldn't put that kind of legislation in place, given Doug Ford's track record with, let's say, French language rights. And really, what weight is Quebec even going to give Ontario's provincial government when um, Ontario's government doesn't show any respect for the rights that French folks in Quebec are asking for, and then to turn around and say, well, we push back against what you're saying now. It's it's interesting. But I also think that it, it these are all this, uh, the conversations that we're having, but there was this huge undercurrent of racism in the entire election. And be it the Black, I know we did a lot of, WSO did a lot of commentary during the election about Justin Trudeau's blackface pictures from when he was younger surfacing. That those are all issues that come out of a larger system of violence where there is so much racism in Canada and we have a history of genocide against indigenous folks and we have anti-black racism and a history of slavery. We have racism against people of color, some of it which is coming from when you look at things like why we're called terrorists, some of that is coming from the federal government. Did you see a role that racism had to play in general across the whole election? Yeah, for sure. I think we really missed an opportunity to have a national conversation about racism. Whenever, you know, people see overt acts of racism, they're very quick to say, that's not my Canada. That's the Mm. the first tweet that you will always see. And I think people say that because it allows them to not take ownership of what's really going on. That's not the Canada I know. This isn't my Canada. But when we start to really take ownership of what racism is in our country and actually have a conversation about it, maybe we can progress. 
by pretending it doesn't exist, we are getting nowhere. And I know it's very easy for us to compare ourselves to other countries like the United States and how it's so much better and blah, blah, blah. But there's still areas for us to improve. We can't act like racism is not, does not have any impact in Canada. I think when we talk about these one-off incidents, that it gives us an opportunity to talk about the larger stage on which they happen and the larger system of racism in which they happen. But we never seem to get past, did someone do the right thing or say the right thing? Mm, No, for sure. I, I was really looking forward to, you know, with the blackface incident with bill 21 having this you know national conversation about racism um but unfortunately it didn't happen i don't think that people made the linkage like some of the rest of us did it does bring us into the conversation on don cherry so for folks who are listening from outside of canada don cherry is an icon in the hockey world in canada and in hockey night in canada he has a segment called coach's corner And he did say on his segment, and he was referring to new immigrants, that they come here and they want everything, but they won't wear the poppy. And the poppy is a red flower that Canadians wear to remember soldiers who lost their lives in the world wars. Um, This was a really interesting moment because of not only because of the racist incident, but the response, Um, the world sick organization put out a tweet and it said 83,006 lost their lives in world war one and world war two. Six soldiers were reinforcing a weakened Canadian division on Flanders fields. Six and Canadians defended the lines shoulder to shoulder as brothers in arms. We all know about the sacrifice behind the poppy. And that was one of the most shared posts on Facebook, one of the most retweeted tweets we've had. It was so clear that there was such a strong, sick Canadian response to what Don Cherry had said. He has since been fired. He refused to apologize. He actually um, has doubled down. Um, and, And after he got fired, someone vandalized the monument for fallen soldiers at Toronto City Hall uh, because Don Cherry had fired. Like, it's spun out of control and it's become such a huge issue. What do you think this issue is really about? So the this issue really hit me hard. Um, my grandfather, my papa G, was a World War II veteran. And it is it was arguably the most important thing to him in his life. And my mom and I actually attend the national uh, ceremony in Ottawa every year together. She drives down from Toronto. I live in Ottawa. And we go out there and we attend the ceremony every year. So for him to say that we don't respect the poppy, say stuff like that, it, it, it really hurt. Because I think it's very easy for people to say, you know, six weren't in Canada, even though we did have people serve in World War One and World War Two on behalf of Canada. But what what India and what Punjab put forward within within those wars still helped the Allied forces. And the issue of him saying, you people, when he's doubled down, when he's gone back, when he's tried to retract his statements, he's like, oh, I shouldn't have said you people. I should have said everybody. The damage has been done. The When you present communities as us versus them, you're going down a slippery slope. So I was very happy to see the response. However, the people who are defending him, I have a little bit of worry with that because it is no secret that hockey can be a racist sport. 
that it is viewed as not for new Canadians. There's a huge barrier for new Canadians to join a sport like hockey, given the amount of money that you need to spend on equipment and all that good stuff. So we have some great organizations tackling some some that work, like up in a hockey in Edmonton that is trying to make hockey a more inclusive sport for Canadians. But for the people defending him, he's he's made a huge mistake. And his inability to realize that and to apologize for that, I think you need to take a look at that. Yeah, I think there's so many elements of why this one incident had such a strong reaction from Canadian Six. Um, hockey is, you can't touch that. Um, to, to accuse new immigrants of not loving the sport is is a dangerous thing to do. Um, <laughs> we have the entire Hockey Night in Canada broadcast done in Punjabi. Um, all of our families have folks that love the game, will pause, will not make plans, will not do anything else when hockey is playing. Um, it's a place that, um, it does have a bit of that universality to it. And if you, while watching hockey are suddenly made aware that it's not for you, I think there's a really strong reaction to that. I also do think that there, it's just not true. And everyone came back at Don Cherry, including the Canadian Armed Forces, to remind him that the sacrifice, he has this idea that the sacrifices were made by white people for everyone else. And there were um, indigenous, there are indigenous veterans, there were indigenous folks that fought in the war who uh, spoke code and used their language. And this problematic history where they are simultaneously being colonized and then fighting for the colonizer, uh, that needs to be honored in all of its complexity. There were definitely six that fought. There is Private Buckham Singh's grave here in Canada. We have proof that six fought for Canada from Canada. There was um, the entire Chinese Labor Corps, where Chinese folks were shipped across Canada uh, to go work, and and they went across the railway railway and then went and were shipped to go dig trenches and to work. Um, and they were exempt from the very racist Chinese head tax we had at the time so that they could go and do this work. And this was something that you can be critical of war and you can disagree with war, but you can't deny the reality that racialized people, that BIPOC folks were present in the wars and did fight. And so the it's interesting to see that Don Cherry has become a person with revisionist history and he's obviously surrounded himself with people where that kind of remembering is not a part of his Remembrance Day. So he wears a poppy, but he wears it to only remember white fallen soldiers, which I think is just as worthy of criticism. And that was how I chose to remember. I do wear a poppy on Remembrance Day and before. I am critical of war. I am critical of the crown and of our country. And I think you that that is my truth. I can be critical of all of those things. And I can also take a moment to remember the people who believed in something enough that they gave their life up for it. That's more conviction than most of the people have in my life. And I also mm -hmm. come from not just a military family. My Babaji was also military. But I come from a, a calm, a bant that values that strength and that discipline. And so I think uh, for me, as someone who's not a white Canadian, I can 
I do. I do observe Remembrance Day. I do wear a poppy. And I continue to be critical of all of the systems that bring those wars in place in the first place. What about, so you did mention you do also take that time with your mom and you, do you wear a poppy and what does that mean for you? Yeah, no, I wear a poppy. Um, I think for a lot of us, a lot of our grandparents did, you know, were World War II vets. Um, and so it, it really is just to honor their sacrifice, you know, leaving your family. Um, my papaji left my BG in the bin by herself um, with no kids. Um, and he went off and he fought a war and communication back then isn't what it is today. So you had no idea back then. Um, if, you know, if your loved ones were still alive. So it really is just to honor that sacrifice. But having gone to the national ceremony every single year, there was a significant change in language. And I just want to speak to that a little bit. They said something to the effect of, we honor those Canadians who were not Canadian yet. Mm. Or something to that effect. So they were honoring people who fought for the same things as Canada did, but just physically weren't here yet or never came here. Um, and that to me was very powerful given Don Cherry's comments because it is so much more than just honoring one type of veteran. We honor all veterans. And they also placed a huge emphasis on those who had lost their battles to mental health um, and were currently struggling with mental health, uh, the impact of mental health issues as a result of fighting in wars. Um, and I also found that to be very powerful. So this like significant change in language over the past couple of years um, is really reassuring to me in terms of the way that, um, that people view this stuff. But unfortunately, Don Cherry kind of messed it up for me. He's gone, and I think if he had apologized, there would have been room for him to grow and change, and he didn't take on that opportunity. I think what he did do is present an opportunity for us all to re-engage in a conversation on why we wear them. And I know I've been far more vocal this November 11th about who I am and how I remember than I would have been in past years. So thank you, Don Cherry, for <laughs> you used your national platform to do something really and we are now going to use our platforms to talk about what that racism means. Welcome, Balpreet Singh, and thank you for joining us to do legal and media updates. Let's start with the legal updates. What's been happening with Bill 21? So in terms of legal updates, uh, there's been a, a second group that has launched uh, a legal challenge of Bill 21. So most likely the courts are going to amalgamate both the challenges into one big challenge. But all it does is it just moves the dates ahead. So we're, while we were hoping that this was going to be heard uh, in the spring, it's probably not going to be heard until late next year at this point. Uh, but the injunction for uh, Bill 21, where it would be suspended until the legal challenge is done, that's going to be heard uh, hopefully this month. So hopefully we'll get some clarification on whether it's going to be actually in effect until the legal challenge is done or not. But what is interesting is that cities across Canada have joined on the bandwagon and have passed motions and resolutions condemning Bill 21. So that includes uh, Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, um, Kelowna, and probably others that I'm forgetting, Winnipeg. So uh, that's also been an interesting development. And what's been happening on the legal front with the operating room policy for sex surgeons? Can you share a little bit about that? 
yeah, so I was approached by a sick doctor who wanted to have some uh, input on an operating room policy for sick surgeons. So operating rooms are obviously sterile environments, and that impacts the dress and the articles of faith that we can bring in. So uh, the policy now actually call, calls for like a sterile distada that's only worn inside the operating room. Um, the kirpan's worn underneath the clothing. The beard is covered by the operating masks. And the kada is either rolled up above the elbow, and that's going to be a huge kada. But uh, if, if someone's not com comfortable taking it off, that's the one option. Or you can remove it and put it in your pocket until the surgery is done. So this is going to be good for uh, surgeons in, in hospitals in Ontario for sure, but even uh, more broadly possibly. Very exciting. Um, and can you share a little bit about the Manitoba Courthouse's Garban policy revision? Okay, so I think most uh, people that know me know that courthouses and Garbans was the first case I took on at, at WSO. And that was because as a high school student, I was not allowed into Toronto courthouses. So that was the first case I took on as WSO legal counsel. And Manitoba's got an interesting history because it was uh, a case called R versus Horty uh, out of Manitoba that made it difficult for Sikhs to work upon into courthouses. So this was a case of an assault, uh, an assault within the Sikh community. So you had uh, an accused whose lawyer asked the judge, so my, my client's wearing this thing, can he wear it? And the judge had no idea what a kirpan was. So he goes, can I see one of these things? And he actually invites one of the members of the audience to come up and, and looks at the kirpan. And then he decides, well, you can call it whatever you want, but to me it looks like a weapon and it's a dagger and a dagger is used for stabbing. He goes, I won't allow one of these things into a Canadian courtroom. And that was actually upheld by the Court of Appeal. Uh, so this was actually the law uh, on the books. And it was an assault accused and a, a judge that really wasn't informed about what the significance of the kirpan is. And uh, interestingly... We've worked through now uh, Ontario, Alberta, British Columbia, but we found out that courts in Manitoba still require that anyone wearing a kirpan is uh, escorted by a police officer or, or a security officer. Uh, and that's really actually quite stigmatizing. So I've been working uh, with the Manitoba courthouses, uh, the Manitoba Justice Department, to uh, get a proper kirpan accommodation. So that's something we're currently working on and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll be done quite shortly. You have folks that reach out to you from a variety of different ways. Uh, this final legal share, what happened with the rec room, how did you come to hear about that? So this came up on our Twitter feed. Uh, a young man went to the rec room, which is like a, a games uh, type of uh, establishment that's operated by Cineplex. Uh, this was in Min Min Mississauga. So he went in and his kirpan was seen by uh, employees and the manager came and told him that the kirpan would not be allowed inside uh, the facility. He tried to explain that it's religious, but they didn't want to uh, allow him in. And when he said, you know, six go to Cineplex and the rec room all the time, they go, well, that's probably because the kirpan hasn't ever been seen before. So this was actually tweeted to us that, you know, can you help? And we were able to get in touch with the young man that was uh, affected right away. And we reached out to the rec room in Cineplex. And there was actually a big meeting that took place with uh, their senior people, uh, including Cineplex and, and rec room. And it was obviously you know, decided right away that what happened was very wrong. And we're working on training for 
rec room employees. But uh, the young man that was uh, involved has now also been uh, invited back for a free night and also got an apology. So all's well that ends well, I guess. It sounds like a lot of the work that you do is legal, but a lot of it is just sharing knowledge and no legal action is required. It's just educating people. What would you say to someone who comes up in this situation? So like someone tweeted about it or someone might have your number and know to call you, but what should generally six moving around Ontario and Canada who are wearing their kakaras, what do they need to know about their rights to wear those kakaras? Where can they wear them? Who can stop them? And when should they reach out for support? So the right to wear the kakaras in Canada is pretty solid. Uh, there's been a lot of litigation that's taken place. Uh, it's very clear that an outright ban on any of the kakaras is not acceptable. For example, the kirpans only banned in two places in Canada. One is prison. And the other is the Quebec National Assembly. And, you know, I mean, what are we going to say about the Quebec National Assembly? It is what it is. Uh, but everywhere else, there cannot be a blanket prohibition. The only place where we're still getting some uh, problems still is, is hard hats, for one. And secondly, gas masks uh, with respect to uh, sick men and the beard. So these are both situations that we've got cases we're working on and we're trying to come up with a bigger solution. But just know that you don't have to be apologetic. You don't have to be nervous. You have a right to wear your kakaas in Canada. And that's something that, uh, you know, our generation and the generations before us have fought very hard to secure. I think that's so important because sometimes people in positions of authority, even if it's someone at the door of the rec room, can say something and you'll question whether you have the right to be in that space. And it's affirming to hear that we can be in those spaces. Alongside the legal updates, you also uh, do a lot of stuff with media. And we've had, uh, since some of our listeners haven't heard from us since before the election, we've had quite a few interesting media moments and opportunities for the World Sick Organization to engage with media. And the WSO is the foremost Canadian organization that handles uh, media and re providing responses. There's a couple of really interesting places that uh, the WSO has shown up. I'm going to start by talking about what happened with Andrew Shear's Bundy Chordavas tweet. What was going on there and what did the WSO do? So props to the Conservative Party of Canada that they were the only political party that did a specific Bundy Chordavas message for the Sikh community. Uh, they had a Punjabi version of it, an English version of it, and that would have been, you know, uh, positive, I think, overall. But the picture that they used was very confusing. So all of us that first saw it couldn't figure out what it was. It was, to some of us, a Polynesian fire dancer. To others, it was a voodoo doll. But it was clearly not a sick image. Uh, when we looked into it further, it turned out that it was an image of a Kerala Hindu festival, uh, where people dress up as Lord Shiva or something. Uh, so obviously it had no link to the Sikh community. And you had Sikhs that were tweeting uh, to the Conservative Party saying, can you fix this image, that this image isn't really suitable for Bandi Shordivs. But it got absolutely no pickup. Like there was no reaction for 48 hours. And we as WSO, we tweeted it as well, saying that, you know, the image isn't appropriate. So at this point, it sort of became a news story. And we kind of had to call out the Conservative Party for just not being sensitive. I mean, imagine if for Hanukkah, you saw uh, people put in an image of a Christmas tree. Like, it's just unthinkable, and you would obviously want it to be corrected right away. So similarly, 
Uh, we wanted this to be corrected, but it only got corrected once it became a media story. There's so many places where the Conservative Party could have acted differently. And I know that the WSO's approach wasn't immediately to go to the media. It's interesting to hear that they didn't respond uh, when Six were saying that to them in real time. Um, so there's a couple of other issues that have come up in the media, one of which was during the election, uh, the way Jagmeet Singh was confronted by racism once uh, and one of them, he was confronted with it multiple times. One of the more overt cases being a man in Quebec that came forward and said, if you would cut your turban off, you would look more Canadian, which if you actually follow to the end of the clip, he actually says he's going to vote for Jigmeet. Uh, what was the WSO's response to that? Jigmeet Singh's involvement in this election was really a watershed moment because it gave an opportunity for the rest of Canada to see what it's like to be a Sikh. Uh, or even just a generally a person of color living in society today. Uh, a lot of people didn't even know that incidents like this could happen. Like racism is still a lived experience. So whether it was Jigmeet Singh's reaction to the blackface uh, controversy or when he's approached by someone that tells him to cut off his turban, uh, it was a moment, I think, that uh, really taught people a lot about our experience today. So when we uh, were approached by the media, uh, we said that, you know, this is not unusual uh, for uh, Sixta, uh, you know, go through. We thought that Jigmeet Singh took the high road, but I mean, what if he really did lose it saying, you know, get out of my face, you know, this is inappropriate. Uh, you know, I think he had no option but to take the high road, but, uh, you know, it's not something that naturally someone should be expected to bear with such forbearance. Uh, but we were, you know, very happy that, the rest of Canada got an opportunity to see this. And uh, we were able to tell the media that this is a lived experience that six still have to go through every day here in Canada. I also want to give some shout outs to other WSO folks who had a role in media coverage during the election. So Amrit Gore is the face of Bill 21 and the fight against Bill 21. And she is a national board member. She speaks French and English and Punjabi. Girpa Gore, also a national board member, did interviews representing Sikh interests from the 905. You yourself were a part of coverage. Jaskaran Sandhu wrote op-eds and did media coverage as well. The WSO team did a really powerful job bringing the Sikh voice to the elections, and I think our concerns were well represented. Thank you, Balpri Singh, for joining our podcast and for sharing all your updates. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, folks. This concludes this episode of the Hashtag Ask Canadian Six podcast done by the World Sick Organization of Canada. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for continuing to support the podcast. We really appreciate it. If you're ever looking for a Canadian Sick perspective on a certain issue, feel free to tag at World Sick Org on any social media platform or use the hashtag AskCanadianSix and we will be sure to include it in our next episode. But until next time, Wahigujika Kalsa Wahigujiki Fatih.